Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. I love that photo. <laughs> that, that, um, the picture? That painting, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, mountain lions and, you know, I just got inspired and said, you know, we really have to put up the tigers. Welcome everyone to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Manuela Tobias, housing reporter with CalMatters. And I am Liam Dillon, and I write about housing affordability for the Los Angeles Times. And today, Friday, February 11th, 2022, we are talking about mountain lions. Cougars, pumas, big cats, basically all of the reasons you would never want a duplex in your town. <laughs> right, right. So this, of course, is the episode you were waiting an entire fortnight for. Our take on the decision made by an extremely wealthy Silicon Valley enclave to attempt to evade new state housing law that allows duplexes of single-family home parcels by declaring itself in its entirety a, quote, mountain lion habitat. This scheme, once made public, lasted for just four days before internet infamy and legal threats from Attorney General Rob Bonta forced the city of Woodside to back down. We're going to give you the full play-by-play -play of the situation, but we would be remiss, as Liam likes to say, if we didn't take this opportunity to provide a fuller story of some other local attempts in California to block housing over the years and what that means and if things are in any way changing. So to do that, we're going to speak with someone who is, of course, and as always, the perfect guest. Who is it, Manuela? We'll be talking with Jessica Traunstein, a political science professor at UC Merced, who has written extensively on housing segregation and development in California and across the country. And you quoted her in your Mountain Lion story, Liam. Yes. Yeah, so we know that she's got the big cat takes. Mm. Um, so... <laughs> Typically, Manuela, here is the part of the episode where we usually break for the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery. And of course, I mean the avocado of the fortnight. But in reality, this episode examines the most zany, crazy, wacky housing issue of the last two weeks. So Liam and I decided to basically make this an all avocado show. And where is this avocado slash show taking us? We are in Woodside, California, a place with a median household income of more than $250,000, median home value of $4.5 So a place that is very unlikely, Liam, to be your or my stomping grounds in the near future. Ah, right. That's true. But as Woodside town council members would like to claim, it is indeed mountain lion stomping grounds. But first, Manuela, why don't you give us some background on the law that we're going to be talking about that's at the center of this? So SB 9, now the California Home Act, essentially says you can now have a duplex or two houses on a single family lot as of January 1st of this year. It also allows properties of a certain size to be split in two in order to build a total of four units on the lot. This was introduced by San Diego Democrat and Senate leader Tony Atkins, followed in the footsteps of much more aggressive but failed policy proposals in recent years to increase density on single-family lots. But this one succeeded. And proponents hope it'll ameliorate the affordability crisis by adding more supply in already developed areas while opponents worry it'll lead to gentrification and strained cities' stressed infrastructure systems. 
Most notably, it's a case where cities, more than 150 of them, came out and said that the state is usurping local control. So definitely a controversial, if you will, piece of legislation. And since the governor, Governor Gavin Newsom, signed SB9 last fall, a lot of cities have scrambled to pass some sort of legislation that would limit how it might actually apply. By one group's tally, it's been about 40 cities have passed some sort of ordinances or rules surrounding this. Some of these restrictions are actually things that are written into the bill that cities are allowed to do, like in some cases limit the size of duplexes and fourplexes or add some design standards. But others have been decently bald-faced attempts to limit whether duplexes or fourplexes get built at all. Before the Woodside incident, probably the most famous or infamous in this regard was Los Altos Hill, another small, wealthy Silicon Valley town, which is requiring that hedges get built surrounding any SB9 properties. Hedges! (laughs) Right? For listeners who have seen it, this reminds me of a great 2000s cartoon movie featuring Steve Carell and Bruce Willis over the hedge about a group of animals led by a raccoon who invade new suburban sprawl that popped up while they were hibernating. I recommend it, Liam. (laughs) I have not seen this movie, but I just had this image in my mind of Bruce Willis as a raccoon, like he was in Die Hard, breaking (laughs) glass and hurting folks, and it's scrambling me a little bit. One of his better roles. I think it actually fits him (laughs) better. (laughs) You should check it out. Okay, right. So we've now established what SB9 is and that some cities have tried to evade this new law. And that Woodside is really rich. Yes, we've also established that, but I still feel like we haven't learned enough about the unique place that Woodside is yet. Can you give us a little bit more? Of course, Liam. You know, I love to talk about where I want to live. So Woodside is in the heart of Silicon Valley, less than a 10-minute drive from Stanford University. It is indeed woodsy, dominated by oaks, redwoods, Douglas firs, eucalyptus, which is actually my favorite tree variety. The town loves its horses has a long equestrian legacy, many horse stables and ranches. It's home to about 5,000 people, some of whom we know. Not personally, otherwise. Not personally, I see. I would be happy to have them on. We've got Steve Jobs, used to have a house there. Neil Young, Michelle Pfeiffer, ex-Sony CEO, Kazuo Harai, and Larry Ellison, the founder of Oracle Corporation. Have you heard of these people, Liam? You know, I haven't heard of the ex-Sony CEO, but I definitely have heard of Sony. Mm, So There you go. So Ellison, I think, is the most interesting here. He spent nine years and $200 million building (laughs) an authentic Japanese feudal castle and a man-made lake with waterfalls on a 23-acre Woodside property. All right. So now that we have made clear that Woodside is indeed a very special place... Let's talk about what they did. So this all started, at least the hubbub did, on February 2nd with an article in the Almanac, local newspaper, by Angela Swartz. So thank you, Angela. And Angela uncovered a brief memo written by Woodside's planning director a week prior regarding SB9 and a petition that would declare mountain lions an endangered species in California. There are some various formalities and legalese in the memo, but it ends thusly. Quote, Given that Woodside, in its entirety, is habitat for a candidate species, no parcel within Woodside is currently eligible for an SB9 project. Boom. Take that. Four plexes. (laughs) Online land. There's no room for you. 
So even better here, Angela at the Almanac got Woodside Mayor Dick Brown to talk about this decision, asking the very obvious but very important question as to whether the town's decision was simply a ruse to get around having any SB9 projects built. So here's what Mayor Brown said. We love animals. Every house that's built is one more acre taken away from mountain lion's habitat. Where are they going to go? Pretty soon, they'll have nothing but asphalt and no animals or birds, end quote. So many, many thoughts here. First, once this news broke, there was a ton of outcry from some people wondering why mountain lions would be okay with, you know, Japanese-style imperial castles and the like, <laughs> but definitely not okay with two houses on one lot. And that's obviously fair enough indeed. But to me, the most ballsy thing about this was what the definition of, quote, mountain lion habitat Woodside was actually using. So, yeah, what, what are you talking about, Liam? So I dug into this a little bit when I was writing a couple pieces about it, which were very fun to do. You know, at first you're like, okay, Woodside in the foothills, definitely kind of probably, you know, woodsy. Maybe it is sort of a special place for mountain lions, even if this was a brazen attempt to avoid this housing law. But no, not the case. So under the way the town was describing potential mountain lion habitat, it's basically anywhere the cougars may roam. So according to species maps here, we're talking everywhere in coastal California from San Francisco south, all of Los Angeles, Orange, and San Diego counties. In fact, Manuela, as hard as it is to believe, I'm actually speaking to you from mountain lion habitat right at this moment. That's terrifying, Liam. Please be careful. Yes, you know, I'm doing my best. Um, as far as I can tell, there are no cougars in here at the moment. Okay, that is good news. But another, I think, amazing aspect of this whole story was that not even mountain lions approved. Right, right. And actually, this, this probably is the best part. So as a housing reporter, you know, I don't have a Rolodex of all the wildlife conservation groups at the ready. But because, as you well know, I am an excellent reporter, I googled mountain lion conservation groups and found the Mountain Lion Foundation. Fair enough. So I dropped them a note and then got a call from Josh Rosenau, a conservation advocate for the Mountain Lion Foundation. And what did Josh say? So he told me that blanket prohibitions against growth in already developed areas isn't something that's required by the state's endangered species laws and don't actually protect pumas. In fact, Josh said efforts to block more dense home building could have the effect of pushing housing further into the state's undeveloped fringes, something that would make things worse, in fact, for the big cats. Here's his quote. Concern for mountain lions is not what's driving that policy because it's not what any mountain lion expert would recommend doing. Wow. So after Woodside was owned by the mountain lions, what happened next? Well, as we've discussed, this has been a rather swift saga. Remember, Hullabaloo broke on a Wednesday by the weekend, all sorts of scorn had come Woodside's way. And then on Sunday morning, Attorney General Rob Bonta dropped a hammer. Did he let the cats out? <laughs> well, <laughs> no. <laughs> but actually what he did is what lawyers tend to do, and he wrote a letter. Ah, uh, okay. What, what did the letter say? Basically, he was like, nah, you can't really do this. The letter had a fun little aside describing the difference between mountain lion range and mountain lion habitat. But the upshot here was Woodside, your policy breaks state law, even violates the state constitution. You need to repeal it. And just a few hours later, they did. Yes, indeed. So following a 90-minute hastily called, mostly behind closed doors, emergency town council meeting on Sunday evening, Woodside officials announced that they would be accepting SB9 applications immediately. So duplexes perhaps could abound. 
They made no mention, the Woodside folks, of the hubbub, rather saying their prior decision was because of a lack of guidance from state conservation officials beforehand. And now that they had this guidance, both mountain lions and fourplexes are allowed to coexist in Woodside. What a story. Yeah, indeed, it really was. And again, a fun one. Manuela, what's your takeaway here? I found this whole thing curious because as the Almanac reported, not a single permit had actually been submitted to take advantage of the new state law and build a second unit or split a lot. And SB9 doesn't actually require people to to build that housing. It gives homeowners the option to do so. So this declaration of some sort of environmental crisis over a species that technically is all over California definitely stayed with me. What did you think, Liam? Yeah, so this is definitely a first for me too. But as I was thinking and reporting about what was happening, it really brought to mind some of the other many stories that I've heard about local governments trying to do things to avoid allowing housing and specifically low-income housing in their communities over the years. Mm, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so I documented many of these instances in a story that I wrote a few years ago on the state's process for requiring cities to set aside enough land for new growth. And we described this process many times before on the podcast, but very quickly. Every eight years, the state tells that every city in California that they have to zone for a certain amount of housing. We're actually in the thick of this time timeline right now, particularly in Los Angeles and the Bay Area. There's a whole bunch of rules surrounding this. So during this process about 20 years ago, probably the grossest thing in this regard that I've come across happened. The city of Folsom, and this is of Johnny Cash and Folsom prison fame, put forward legislation that would have counted their prison beds towards meeting their low-income housing requirements. Wow. So you're poor, you need a home. Why? There's plenty over there at the prison. Yeah. So I found a few other proposals like this, although admittedly not as bad as what Folsom was proposing. Mm. One effort would have counted households who take in foster children toward meeting low-income housing goals, and that's also kind of pretty gross, right? There were some college towns that wanted to count student dormitories in their areas as low-income housing. And then the city of La Habra Heights in LA County get exempt from having to plan for apartments at all because they said that the La Habra Heights was too hilly. These are pretty egregious. And we often talk about the lack of housing across the state and complain about our own rents. But really, it's the lowest earners who feel the brunt of this most acutely. The California Housing Partnership, for example, found that nearly 80% of extremely low-income households in California are paying more than half of their income on housing costs. And that's compared to just 6% of moderate-income families. And no racial group has a greater burden, cost burden, than Black households, which just goes to show the racialized impact. Yeah, and so to be clear, none of the measures that I just mentioned actually passed, but they do show you some of the hatred here that localities have had for these requirements over the years. And there have been many, many, many instances of cities approving housing plans that they openly admit they have no intention of following through with when it comes times to okay like actual new development or actual new homes. Officials in La Cañada Flint Ridge, which is a wealthy majority white enclave in northeastern L.A. County, told me this directly in approving a housing plan ultimately designed to keep low income and denser housing out. Here's a quote that I got from a planning commissioner there a few years ago. He said, people like people of their own tribe. I think the attempt to change it is ludicrous, be it black, be it white. People want to be with people who are like them. To force people through legislation to change in that way is impractical. What that 
argument and others like it ignores is that it's rich, most often white people who get to decide that place where they live, whereas the rest, thanks to redlining and historic disinvestment, have had to live in areas with higher pollution and lower access to good schools and jobs. So one, one more of these by a very esteemed colleague, Pat Morrison at the LA Times, sent me an old article from the 1990s outlining that some ritzy LA communities, San Marino, Bradbury, Rolling Hills Estates, had successfully gotten to count servants' quarters, their servants' quarters as low-income housing towards the state's housing goals at the time, even though these servants' quarters, you know, obviously not public and literally where their servants would live. Wow, and that's just from the 90s. That's not that long ago. While some of what we just discussed is obviously funny, some of it very much not, I think it all tells a larger story about the ability to build housing, and most specifically low-income housing, and some of the historical resistance from local governments and neighborhood groups to do so. Now, I want to be very clear here. I don't want to paint too broad a brush and blame these actors entirely for the state's affordable housing crisis, of course. You know, for a long time, there's been a comparative dearth in funding for low-income development. There's broader tax policy that affects incentives for home building, plus, you know, the vagaries of the market and cost of supplies and mortgage rates. Local governments have little to nothing to do with those issues that obviously affect how expensive housing is for everybody. But, you know, clearly, when there's this kind of resistance to development and specifically low-income development and really empowered resistance to housing, it matters. That's a really good point, Liam. I really don't think, as you just said, that blame can be cast on a single actor here. But the takeaway is that these policies do cumulatively help a little bit to explain why it's so hard for people with lower incomes to afford to stay housed in California. So let's talk a little bit about Jessica's research before we chat with her. Central claim in her book, which is called Segregation by Design, is this, and I'm just quoting from it here, local governments pursue segregation at the behest of politically powerful interests. This allows politicians to target public goods towards some residents and away from others, resulting in differential access to public goods. Segregation generates unequal political outcomes, which in turn reinforces segregation. In essence, what she's saying is, 20th century segregating efforts from things like government-backed mortgage, redlining, racially restrictive covenants, interstate highway construction, urban renewal, real estate capital-backed blockbusting, and things of that nature have created self-perpetuating forces of structural segregation, even though many of these practices are illegal today. And one result of this is the continued unequal provision of goods that everybody, no matter their race or income, wants. High property values, quality schools, safe streets. One thing that has continued to strike me in some of my conversations with Jessica over the years on these issues is that we've talked basically about how the wealthiest and whitest areas sort of continue to try to find a way. What I mean by that is that state housing laws like SB9, for instance, often include at least a modicum of flexibility for local governments to tailor policies to their particular situations, which of course makes sense when you consider a state as large and diverse as California. But when that happens, you're likely to create the ability for there to be some loopholes. And what communities are the ones to find and hone in on those loopholes? The ones with the resources to hire the lawyers or, you know, be lawyer themselves to figure that out. Right. And you certainly see that playing out with some of the cities we've discussed today. One other thing about her research that I found fascinating is that it's not just the wealthy white suburbs that prefer single family homes. In a recent paper titled, You Won't Be My Neighbor, 
Jessica found that while preferences for single family development over apartments was stronger among higher socioeconomic residents, pretty much everyone prefers single family homes, regardless of their income, race, ethnicity, political party, whether they own or rent their homes. And on the one hand, right, it's shocking because we're always talking about the racialized effects of single family zoning and how that's led to the exclusion of minorities and people with lower incomes. But on the other hand, it's also pretty intuitive what she finds because single family development today has been portrayed as being synonymous with safety, better schools, less traffic, and everyone wants a shot at that. And that's what it's supposed to look like, no matter who you are. A lot of fascinating stuff here. Let's just start talking with Jessica. We're here with Jessica Traunstein, a political science professor at UC Merced and author of the book Segregation by Design, which examines how local government policies created and perpetuated segregated living patterns across the country. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with your book. It's called Segregation by Design. When you say by design, what do you mean by that? So I have found over the course of my research on segregation and on inequalities in public goods provision, that a lot of people assume or believe that segregation is something that happens by accident, that it is just a pattern that occurs because people have differences in wealth or because people prefer to live in certain neighborhoods versus others. And what I discovered in doing this research is that, to the contrary, segregation was and is by design. And in order to understand policy solutions to undoing segregation, the first step is to understand that segregation is purposeful. And the people who create segregation and benefit from segregation are always those who are most opposed to undoing it. Give us an example of what you're talking about. I The book starts actually back in 1890 um, when cities first started to grow in the United States. And even at the very earliest stages of development, I find that cities were creating different kinds of land use regulations. Actual zoning doesn't occur until the early 1900s, but lots of different kinds of land use regulations that were purposefully directed at making sure that certain residents with certain demographic characteristics lived in some neighborhoods and other residents with other demographic characteristics lived in other neighborhoods. And there's, you know, examples in every large city in the United States. One of the most famous and early cases of the perpetuation of segregation by design is actually San Francisco, California, where the city decided to try to ensure that Chinese residents would not live above their laundries when they were creating their businesses. And so passed a regulation that tried to prevent people from living above their business. And the intent was to try to ensure that Chinese residents in San Francisco all lived in Chinatown rather than throughout the city. But I imagine when you talk about this, you get a lot of people who will say, well, look, you know, you're talking about something that happened 100 years ago, urban renewal, that happened 50 years ago, racially restrictive covenants, they're illegal now, all these sorts of things. So what's the case for these sorts of instruments continuing through this day? So there's two ways to think about this. One is that 
segregation is sticky and it becomes part of our land use pattern by the Second World War. Every large city in America has segregated living patterns. And then in the post-war period, we get segregation between cities. So this is sort of the suburbanization of America where whiter cities are ringing the central cities of color. And any land use regulation that prevents or limits change in the housing stock works to reify those earlier patterns of segregation. So that is one way that decisions today can perpetuate segregation. But there are other ways that are more direct. So the fundamental mechanism that cities use today is to change the price or the value of housing in certain neighborhoods. And that means that that housing becomes unavailable to people of lower incomes or the lower end of the income distribution. And so by making one part of town or the whole city unavailable to say multifamily housing or housing that is located on a smaller lot, what that means is that all the housing in that particular area becomes more expensive and then unavailable to people with lower incomes. And because income and race in the United States have always been extremely highly correlated. What this means is that you price out certain demographics, certain racial demographics, in addition to pricing out certain economic groups. So what do you make of the Woodside saga and some other recent attempts to skirt state housing law? How much does that play into the findings from your book? It's an excellent example of what I'm talking about in my book, which is that Local governments will do what they can to try to create the characteristics of the city that they want. And, you know, this isn't universal. Some cities um, have much more liberal housing laws and housing regulations, land use regulations than others do. But the places like Woodside that tend to be the most exclusive and tend to have the most to gain or most to lose, I guess, by keeping their land use regulations as they are, tend to be the first kinds of places that try to find a way to maintain their existing housing patterns. And land use law that comes from the state government is actually, historically speaking, and maybe it's changing now, it's not that successful. And it hasn't been that successful at changing what local governments do because local governments find lots of ways around it. Going back to the Mount Laurel decision back in New Jersey a long time ago, we have seen state governments try to make changes to land use regulations, try to force cities to treat housing in certain ways and to develop in certain ways. And cities that really want to avoid that will do that. They will find ways around the state level regulations. So with respect to Woodside in particular, for this particular law, I mean, there's been some pushback to this in some of it's sort of well-founded, which is like, look, if there's a $3 million mansion, right, and someone builds duplexes that are $2 million each duplexes on that particular lot or a duplex, two homes that are worth $2 million, if you will, rather than one home that's worth $3 million, how much of that sort of thing is actually affecting racial and economic integration? It affects it on the margins, right? So, you know, any community that prevents certain people from living in that community is perpetuating segregation. And so, okay, we might not be so worried that the single millionaire versus the multimillionaire doesn't have access to housing, but on the margins, developing more housing will increase integration in the community. So what do you expect from cities with lower socioeconomic status than Woodside, for example, fighting against state laws? What does this mean for the potential implementation of this law and others going forward? 
It's complicated for cities at the lower end of the income distribution and neighborhoods at the lower end of the income distribution are particularly sort of vulnerable in certain ways to city level and state level laws about land use regulation. So you can think about housing at all ends of the income distribution as a social good. We need to be able to house the people who make a minimum wage and we need to be able to house the people who make a lot of money. So Society has a responsibility to create homes for everyone. This is something that society needs to do. And historically, what has occurred has been that cities have picked certain neighborhoods and said, those are going to be the neighborhoods where all the people at the lower end of the income distribution are going to live. And we're also going to put other junky things in that neighborhood, like the recycling plant and the railroad tracks or whatever else. Now we have whole cities that are saying, well, we're not even going to have a neighborhood where we have low income people. So what ends up happening is that these places, neighborhoods and cities where low income residents have found housing and found opportunities to live end up being places where they're sort of at risk for gentrification. And that becomes a worry of these communities, right? If you build a bunch of new housing only in my community, all the new housing is located in my community, that's going to become very attractive for certain segments of the population. What really has to happen in order for integration to work is not to shove more housing into the same neighborhoods that have always had more housing. It's to put housing everywhere and to make sure that the most exclusive places don't get to maintain their exclusivity. A lot of state law in California has failed because of a coalition of, on the one hand, lower income communities that say, we don't want to be gentrified and higher income communities that say, we don't want any more housing in our community at all. And it has been, you know, sort of the fate of a lot of California housing law. So do you expect the same level of pushback from these poorer cities? I don't for the basic reason that SB 9 is actually a pretty mild mannered law. It allows property owners to make different choices, but it doesn't allow property owners to build a 40 story high rise on their property. Like we're going to build duplexes or maybe quadplexes, right? So I expect that there are communities that see that as potentially beneficial for their residents. And so I would expect to see less pushback, but there may also be less pushback because they have not figured out a way to find a loophole in the law. And, you know, there's some really great new research showing that when neighborhoods get more control over housing policy, whatever their income distribution, they tend to block housing. That's a a good transition to kind of the other aspect of your research and a new paper that you did about basically like nobody likes apartments. There is like, as you said, in one sense, that allowing two houses on a lot instead of one is, you know, mild, but there is a big, in my view, like philosophical shift here from like the mythology of what single family zoning, particularly in California, sort of represented and that definitively sort of here being pierced, you know? And so kind of going back to the other part of your research, you know, what does it mean that no one likes apartments? You know, no matter your race, no matter your income, right? Does this negate the kind of conventional wisdom we often hear about some of the race-based underpinnings of single-family home-only zoning? I think it does. So two things here. One is that that new research that you're describing. So I did this survey using some fancy statistical methods, tried to get people to pick which housing development they would like or wouldn't like. And I expected very different results from this. I expected the 
white and wealthy respondents to my survey to be the most vehemently opposed to denser housing. And that's not what I found. What I found was that every group was opposed to apartment complexes, essentially, and even to condos. Denser housing in my survey was universally disliked. It was disliked a little bit more by some groups than others, but nobody liked it. Nobody said, yeah, build an apartment complex next door to me. But the thing to remember is that not everybody has had the same power in making land use regulations. So there's two two pieces of this. One is what are people's preferences? And the other piece of this is who has the power to enact their preferences? And I maintain that white and wealthy residents have, for as long as cities have existed, had more power to enact their preferences than poorer people and people of color. And so to say it doesn't completely undo the conventional wisdom, it just makes it a little bit more complicated. The way it makes it more complicated is to say the answer to building apartments or denser housing is not to simply take away power from white and wealthy residents and give it to poorer people of color. They should have power too, but it's not going to solve the housing problem in my view. So do you think that people's preferences on housing development conflicts with what's actually good for them in the collective? And then how do you craft public policy around that? I think it's really challenging. So I think there are some narratives that have to be corrected here. One is that an apartment building doesn't have to be 40 stories. You could have like a little apartment complex. And people seem to be in my survey, and I didn't write much about this in the paper, much more tolerant of duplexes and townhomes than they are of apartment buildings. And so part of this is messaging, right? So an apartment doesn't have to be this looming thing. But we've also cities have failed to take into consideration and failed to provide the public goods that are necessary to maintain denser housing. So there are lots of places in the world where transit is much better, for instance, right? So everybody gets very worried about where they're going to park their car. That's worrisome to everybody because everybody has a car in the United States, right? And there are places in the world where that just isn't true. And if we had better transportation policies, if we had better school policies, if we had a different sort of funding model for our public goods, then densification wouldn't conflict so much with people's other preferences about how their world works or how they live and how they enjoy life. You referenced this point, and you and I have had some conversations to this effect. The idea about wealthy communities finding a way, whereas other communities without the wherewithal, financial or time, otherwise being able to enact their preferences or find ways around certain laws and things like that. And to me, this phenomenon really became apparent when I was writing in a previous job, writing about local government in San Diego and watching 2 p.m. committee meetings where all these decisions were made. And of course, who was showing up at these meetings? There were people who had the time themselves to show up, which it obviously implies a certain level of affluence or leisure, or people who had the ability, financial ability to hire people to go on their behalf, which obviously implies a certain level of affluence. And so to what extent is it possible and how do you break those boundaries or those structures such that there's more access to broader policymaking? Or is this simply a fact of the way that things are in any state law or any state policy that is going to come down? These groups or these communities are going to be able, because of their privilege and affluence and wherewithal, be able to find a way around or take a chance to find a way around. I think both of those things are true, right? I think that 
high resource communities are going to always be best able to take advantage of politics. It's not just on housing law, right? It's on every law. And we have tons and tons of research in political science that shows that high resource individuals turn out more. They vote more. They call their congressmen more. And their preferences are enacted into policy at much higher rates than people at the lower end of the income distribution. And so that is a fact of politics. But it doesn't mean that we should throw up our hands and say like, oh, well, I guess, uh, you know, the rich people are going to rule the world. We have a societal responsibility to try to figure out how to improve democracy at all levels of government. And doing things like not having committee meetings at 2 p.m. is one way to do that, right? Just like where we can mail everybody a ballot, it's we can do this, right? We can figure out ways to make democracy more accessible. And sometimes on the margins, it helps. And what I have found in my research, not in the papers that we've talked about here necessarily, is that When you have elected officials from varied demographic groups, when you have a robust interest group um, community where you have voices that are representing people who don't have time to come to 2 p.m. planning meetings or whatever, you end up with policy choices, policy decisions that are closer to what the median voter might want or might benefit the median voter. So I have this new paper that's looking at how planning commissioners play a role in the densification of neighborhoods. And the results are not peer reviewed. So this is just early results. But I have found that neighborhoods that have planning commission representation are much less likely to densify their zoning regulations, which is, you know, obviously not surprising, but it's it's yet another place in the political structure where we see advantages for some groups rather than others. So what is the way out here? How do we break through some of those issues that you've identified? And I'm particularly interested in your findings from this paper about people's preferences when it's not going to be within the next couple of years that suddenly our transit systems are are perfect or anywhere close to that. No. And I think, you know, one of the answers here is that we have to find coalitions of people who share a common goal, even if they come to the table with for very different reasons. And what I have found is that in working with different communities, particularly on the question of densification or building more housing, there are coalitions that exist and they're different in different places. So in some places where I have gone and talked to people on the ground, people are very motivated by environmental questions that we're going to continue to pollute and that sprawl and long commutes are bad for the environment and that the solution, the climate solution is going to require densification of housing. That's a very powerful argument in some communities. It's not a powerful argument in others. For instance, it's not a super powerful argument here in the Valley where people are like, well, you know, there's lots of things that contribute to pollution and the climate and well, that's not helpful. There are other places where housing certain members of the community, housing dishwashers and teachers and firefighters and police officers is a very motivating coalition building kind of argument. For each of these policy decisions that we're talking about, whether it be voting or densification of housing, What's important is to make sure that we're listening to as many people in the community as possible and bringing as many people to the table as possible. I think it's the first step. It's not a panacea. It's not going to fix everything, partially because of the preferences that people have, but it's at least a first step. And just because you mentioned the Valley, I'd love to ask, we've been talking a lot about the Bay Area specifically. What are you noticing about the implementation of these types of laws there? And is there anything that we're missing from the argument as we're focusing on these coastal cities. 
So the coastal cities have a very different kind of demand structure for housing, but the valley has become increasingly subject to similar kinds of pressures. And so when I first moved here, I don't know, in 2009, housing was super cheap and it was great. You could find housing, you know, everywhere at all levels of the income distribution. And that's becoming less true now. And so actually, in some ways, the valley is looking more like the Bay Area in some of these questions, although the valley does not have nearly as much opposition to building anything. So there's a lot of positive movement in building single family housing, but I will tell you, it is very, very hard to build apartment complexes here in Merced, even when we have this huge need. We have this giant university where the students need to live in apartments and people still don't want to build apartments. And so we've got tons of students who are renting these five bedroom houses. And, you know, I mean, that's fun when you're a college student, but it's probably not ideal for the community. So we should note podcast is an audio medium, but we are talking over Zoom and we should note for our, our listeners that over your shoulder is a, a drawn picture of a tiger. So you came well prepared for this conversation and we appreciate that. But when you first heard about this Woodside uh, scheme, if you will, how did it rank in your sort of local government evasion of housing law uh, bracket? It's pretty extreme in my knowledge of these kinds of practices. Zoning an entire city in a particular way or making a claim about an entire city is a fairly dramatic move rather than, say, taking one neighborhood in Woodside and saying, this is where the mountain lions really like to hang out. Um, (laughs) You know, I don't know much about the mountain lion habitat, so but it's possible. (laughs) Right, right. Okay, Jessica, well, thanks so much. Anything else that you want to add or ensure that our very vast and influential audience knows about. I don't think I have anything. This has been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or past episodes or think you'll enjoy future episodes, please do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your other favorite podcast service. This, again, is really important so that new people can discover us and our comedic and fun stylings. Our editor is Victor Figueroa. Victor, thanks so much, as always. My name is Liam. I work for the LA Times, and you can find me on Twitter at Dylan Liam. And I'm Manuela from CalMatters, and my Twitter handle is Manuela Tobias M. Thank you all so much for listening. Mm-hmm.